This is the first episode in a two-part series. The series discusses graphic violence, crime scenes, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. This is the fall line. On May 8, 2010, 24-year-old Darren Gray had plans to go to Lafayette Park in Norfolk, Virginia, a place a lot of folks call City Park. It's a popular spot for all kinds of community gatherings, big and small, and not far from the Virginia Zoo. Darren had grown up in that area. His mother and brothers and sisters and stepfather, his extended family, they made up a web of connections across Norfolk. His aunts, uncles, his cousins, his friends. Darren Gray knew lots of people, and lots of people knew Darren Gray. Darren was an aspiring rapper, and he was also in school. That Saturday in May, he was on familiar turf. The Virginia Zoo, right by the park, was a place Darren's mother, Roycinda Alexander, had regularly taken their family. Darren was headed to City Park that Saturday, it was Mother's Day weekend, to celebrate. Local TV station WAVY reported that he was there to celebrate, quote, a child's birthday. 2010 reporting also used the general phrase, a child, but we've been told that the celebration was actually for Darren's son, who'd recently turned one year old. Guests gathered at what the Virginian Pilot newspaper described as a, quote, picnic pavilion at the park. It was one of several such structures in the area. WAVY News described the area as decorated with, quote, balloons and picnic tables, covered in snacks and sodas, and with a birthday cake. This kind of gathering was a common sight at City Park, a place where families gathered and children played. Norfolk police detective Jonathan Smith told WAVY, quote, It's a place where families want to go and they want to have fun. They want to enjoy their day. They want to enjoy their kids. They want to enjoy it without having to worry about getting shot down and killed. Darren planned to attend the gathering with his child's mother, but according to our interviews with Darren's relatives, most of his other family members weren't in attendance that day. This is difficult to fully verify, as of course, Darren's mother, Roycinda Alexander, is operating on memories that are now over a decade old. But she recalls that they'd originally been invited to a party that was scheduled for the weekend before. Roycinda tells us that she recalls that, for some reason, the original celebration had been canceled, and either she wasn't invited to the rescheduled party or it was scheduled at the last minute and that she couldn't attend. Roycinda was out of town that Saturday. She wasn't too far, just in Virginia Beach, 20 or so minutes away, but not as close as she would have liked to have been. It took her what felt like hours to reach City Park, later that day, when she got the call. What happened at City Park in Norfolk that Saturday in May has been reported in slightly different ways in the media, and again in the courtrooms. The details have been told and retold, and that's the way of things with breaking news. You only notice the differences when you're able to go back and lay everything out a decade later and take a hard look at it. But one thing we know is this. 
there was another group of people gathered near the party guests, and they were mostly or all men, based on bystander and court reports. Some news media reported that Darren did not know these men, and others said that he actually had a passing familiarity with them because they'd all grown up in the nearby Park Place neighborhood. Whether they knew each other, or just knew of each other, that's remained a point of discussion for years. Because, if there was no connection between them at all, why would events have unfolded as they did that afternoon? The Virginian pilot reported, and trial testimony confirmed, that, at the least, nearly everyone gathered in the area of City Park that day had grown up in the surrounding neighborhoods just like Darren and his family. Roycinda, Darren's mother, had always felt a part of that community, but things would soon change. At City Park that day, it's clear what was happening in one of the pavilions, the one where Darren stood, a birthday party for a child. But as for the gathering of the next one over, in 2011, the Virginian pilot reported that, quote, According to a prosecutor and court testimony, the men at the neighboring pavilion were, quote, members of the Bloods gang, gathered for a business meeting. The implication has sometimes been that it was by chance that the two groups gathered next to one another. Friends and relatives of Darren Gray, they've heard otherwise. There have been rumors that at least some of the people there may have been waiting for Darren to arrive that there was a pre-existing issue between them. In the days and weeks following that Saturday in May, after the park, the phrases, no clear motive, and no apparent motive, were used multiple times in the media. But by 2011, the Virginian pilot reported that in a Virginia courtroom, a prosecutor would say that there was, indeed, something brewing between Darren Gray and the gathered men. The prosecutor charged that there was, quote, a running argument about money and an attempted robbery. Gray either owed money or had disrespected the gang. It's not a matter of strangers. Everyone knows everyone, end quote. But Darren's mother, Roycinda, tells us that's only one version of the story. We're going to tell you more about that. First, though, we have to go over what happened to Darren Gray on May 8th, 2010. How the two separate groups, the men at the pavilion and the partygoers, cross paths, that's been described a little differently, too. In 2022, WAVY's cold case coverage reported that one of the men from that second pavilion broke out from the group, walked over, quote, to Darren Gray and shook his hand, singling him out to a nearby group of men. Other reports from 2010 and 2011, including court proceedings, don't mention a handshake at all, which ultimately we don't find that strange. Who speaks to reporters versus to the police just varies. What's seen from a certain vantage point, or remembered years later, the details of a traumatic event are not the objective timeline that we all hope for. They come in bits and pieces. People change their stories, whether it's accidentally or purposely. All the accounts, however, mention one key moment, a man from the second pavilion of the group walking over to the partygoers and approaching Darren Gray. That man reportedly took the baby from Darren's arms and handed the child to its mother. And then, without warning, the violence began. 
What happened in the park that day would later be described as, quote, a mob beating. But those words don't capture the brutality of what Darren Gray experienced. A circle of men surrounded him. Per WAVY News, Darren was trapped by the group of at least five individuals who began to beat him as he was, quote, stomped, punched, and kicked. Per court records printed in the Virginian pilot, quote, someone grabbed a glass Grey Goose vodka bottle from a table and struck Grey in the right side of the face. When Roycinda Alexander wrote to us and asked us to cover Darren's case, she told us that the bottle was not just a weapon. It became lodged in Darren's face. In the confusion of the attack, several shots then rang out. At least two separate people fired on Darren. According to the Virginian pilot, he was shot a total of nine times. Per the pilot, when the NPD arrived on scene, there were at least 30 people fleeing. How many were persons of interest versus terrified parkgoers or even party guests, we can't say. The big questions really were, who had circled and beaten Darren, and who had fired those shots? Darren Gray's family and local investigators have been trying to untangle those threads for years. Because Darren Gray hadn't just been attacked in City Park, he'd been murdered. And though there were dozens of people there on a bright, sunny day, no witnesses immediately came forward to police. After a lengthy investigation, there would be convictions for Darren's beating, but not for his homicide. But even the information that came to light during those court proceedings was not as clear or as final as his family might have hoped. Over these two episodes, we'll tell you that story, but Darren's family has more to share. They want to talk about who Darren was and their frustration that, after a decade, his case still hasn't been fully resolved, that his child has grown up without his father, and they've lost who his sister Shantae called the glue of their family. The oldest child, who looked after his younger siblings, Shantae, Sergio, Ashley, and Miguel. It's hard for them to understand why, even after all these years, no one has been willing to come forward with what they know. On the few news videos that exist regarding Darren's case, there are supportive YouTube comments, but there are also others who've had negative or disturbing things to say. Just six months ago, someone posted on a WAVY news story about Darren's cold case, quote, No one will talk to the police, including me. Darren's sister Shantae saw that comment. So she wrote back, quote, And why is that? Why even respond to let others know you may possibly know something if you're not willing to talk? And that is exactly what has haunted Darren Gray's loved ones over what will soon be 13 years. We often say on this show that someone somewhere must know something. In Darren's case, that's a foregone conclusion. Roycinda Alexander and her children already know that that's the case. They can understand why people don't come forward in cases, but the knowledge that so many people were there who could possibly resolve Darren's homicide is haunting. After all, Park Place was their neighborhood. When Roycinda first got in touch, she arranged for us to speak with a number of people, including her daughter Shantae, her son Miguel, and, eventually, the detective assigned to Darren's case. 
One of the first things that Roycinda and her now adult children spoke with us about was Darren's family relationships. News reports surrounding his death didn't give much detail about Darren's personal life, other than he'd been a 24-year-old father. But according to his family, there was a lot to know and to love about him. Roycinda began by telling us how she met Darren's father, Michael. They were both teenagers when Darren was born. I was young, didn't want to be grown. We all lived in a community housing. It used to be base housing. They turned it in. They allowed civilians to move in. Uh, that's where I met, met him at. But uh, it was no love there. I was just a rebellious young girl, and I wanted to stay home. His, his mom let us come over there and chill. You know, his mom was a cool parent back then. But we all just stayed over there. But I ended up having five kids by him. Lord, I don't know why I did that one. But I had five by the time I was 21. I was excited, though, you know. It did give me more faith because I left my mother's house. I lived on my own then. With his mother help, of course, his mother was the person that kind of helped me with Darren. It was a long birth. I had him the same day that the shuttle exploded, February 25th, 1986. Michael was in Yaco. I was home. I basically took care of Darren by myself, along with Michael's mom, and he used to try to eat everything. He didn't want no regular uh, baby food. He wanted to eat our food. He used to hang with me because, like I said, I didn't need a babysitter. That was my first child. So he went everywhere I went. That's why when he was older, when he got old enough, like in his diapers, Darren thought he was a big boy. He did. He wanted to play with the little kids. He wanted to go outside. I mean, he did everything I did. Because, like I said, I didn't need a babysitter when I had him. Darren just liked what he liked. He liked being out there. He liked being with the big kids. Just like his example. Okay, I don't know if you know Van's shoes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Back then, I brought Darren some, right? His cousin came over with some Nikes on. His cousin said, Darren, why you got no shoes, man? But my mama told me to put them on. And you know, Darren went and threw them things away. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> yes, he did. Darren always wanted to be a part of the in crowd. That's all it took right then. And from that point on, oh, my goodness. I'm going to tell you, I couldn't catch up with him for nothing. As Darren grew older, Roycinda was enrolled in nursing school and busy with studying and caring for his younger brothers and sisters. And one particular hurdle the family faced was the ongoing illness of Darren's younger brother, Sergio. At first, his ongoing sickliness was a mystery, but doctors eventually discovered what was wrong. Sergio had experienced lead poisoning, but it was discovered by pure chance. The house that Roycinda and her family lived in, Brownstone, had attracted the attention of the local health department. A number of children who resided in other apartments had died or grown sick with lead poisoning, and officials came in to do random testing. Sergio had tested positive for lead, and he was gravely ill. Roycinda told us that, at the time, he was just two years old, and that he was hospitalized for two weeks. He cried all the time. He had jaundice in his eyes and his fingernails. 
and that was because of the lead. And he had 64 grams of it in his body, which he could have died. He should have been dead. That's what they said, but he didn't, I guess, because he was inhaling it. But it still damaged him enough to where, as you can see, he's now in penitentiary. It didn't affect him as far as, you know, far as handicap him physically, but it did affect him mentally and socially. He could read a paperback in a matter of 20 minutes. He retained information. He, he wasn't academically challenged. He was mentally challenged, but they couldn't see that because he didn't fall under the mental health scale of being mentally challenged. Now they do all the stuff I fought for. Now they do accommodate that. You know, they help the kids in school, the classrooms. They try to make sure they're smaller. They're checking for the lead amounts in the schools now, the drinking water and stuff like that. You know, they're doing all that stuff that they should have done back then, but Virginia was so far behind. They didn't know. Darren was like the caretaker. He did take care of her, do a lot with them because he was the oldest. During the time Serge was going through the lead and stuff like that, Darren was the one that Serge went to. Darren's help with Sergio was incredibly important to Rosinda because she was fighting for accommodations and services that, in the 1990s, she said the school system was simply not willing to offer her child. Although Sergio received a settlement payment due to his poisoning, it didn't help him with the support he needed in school. It was held in trust. Because Roysenda's second husband was in the military, they had some therapy resources, but she tells us it simply wasn't enough. Roysenda tells us that when she petitioned the school board for a one-on-one mentor program to help students who had issues transitioning from middle school to high school, the response back to her was swift. They laughed at her. So that's who Darren was to Rosinda and to Sergio in early life. Oldest child, helper, and to his sister Shante, he was a friend and a playmate. They were close in age and similar in many ways, and that made them even more close. My sister was very girlish, so she didn't participate. But with my brothers, we always played football, you know. They would flip off the roof onto mattresses. This were just things we would do as kids to have fun. As far as when it was just me and Darren, we were very close. He was very goofy. That was the main thing that I loved about him. Like, especially if you were having a bad day. And he came around and always in high spirits, good spirits. And he would, he would make your day better than it was before he came. And he was also an artist. He, like, can draw. I remember when he drew me um, this Tweety Bird. I was a big fan of Tweety Bird. And I'm so sad that I can't find that picture. But he drew it, and it was so beautiful. And to this day, I still ask my mom, like, have you seen my picture? And then when it was five of us, we used to travel a lot because our dad was in the military. So we would gain friends, lose friends. So that just brought us even closer because we never knew when we were going to just uproot and go to Mississippi or Arkansas or somewhere. So we were very close when we were younger. It was a beautiful thing. In elementary school, Darren was the goofball. He had a lot of friends. 
The teachers loved him. Everyone loved Darren. He wasn't really into sports, so he had to um, linger around in the cafeteria with his friends, and they would joke and play. He was a people person. The elderly folks, everyone loved him. Darren was very, he used to always go around and help the elderly people out park place. And, you know, you don't find many teenagers coming into adulthood that's really willing to help the elderly, you know, without some type of monetary, you know, you going to give me some money or you going to do this, you know, but Darren was just very outgoing and helpful with the elderly. And that was something I really loved about him because he was a people person and you can see it. What kinds of things would he do for them? I know a lady told me that he would come and plant her plants in her garden. And then, you know, he would take in their groceries or help them across the street or probably just sit around and make conversation because folks did not have family around. Miguel, who's the baby of the family, best remembers Darren during a sort of transitory time. His older brother as a young teen and then eventually as a young man. The cool older sibling who moved out when Miguel was in middle school. And Miguel also remembered how important Roycinda and Darren's relationship was, how close they were. I just remember just a lot of our family. And then we got cousins, too, just a big family. We all was close in age. We all were doing the same thing outside, riding a bike, flipping the normal family stuff. I was the savior. He was pretty protective over everybody because he'd been here before. He know how to it. He definitely looked out for me. Everybody was on my side. It was a privilege being the youngest for real. Uh, he was the firstborn. Oh, man, he helped around everywhere he goes. If she wasn't in the house, he was helping take care of the children, make sure we doing our homework. He was everything to my mama. He definitely was a joker. Definitely got the joke. And he just got all the personality. He just uh, he just has it all. Everything you need. Funny, handsome, literate, could talk. Man, he just got it all. He been up and out the house. I was still in the house, so I was just I just thought that was the way of life how it go. We were all getting to a certain age of becoming our own type of person. Everybody got different friends. Everybody was branching out. So yeah, he'd been with the older kids for a long time. I used to see him every day, for real. We used to hang around when we was younger. He had come to my basketball. He'd stay out later than I do, but I basically see him every chance I could get. So even though he went off hanging out with friends and leaving the house, he made an effort to remain the really solid presence in your life? Yeah, me, sure. We were straight. Yeah, no, we was at it all time. In his late teens, Darren's life shifted, as many teenagers' lives do. He was focused on friends and on dating, especially on dating, as his family tells us. He wanted to have more freedom than his parents would allow. And that meant that his siblings and parents didn't know much about his day-to-day schedule as they might have otherwise. Though, as Miguel said, he certainly checked in. So as Darren got older, he started to distance himself because, you know, when you get older, you try to find yourself. So he went out into the world at 18 
And he was just trying to find himself. So he was always around his friends. But on holidays, he made sure he was always around for holidays, like birthdays, Christmas, Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving was his favorite holiday. So every Thanksgiving, he used to pop up. We would watch football. We're laughing, joke. You know, we would talk about our life problems. And that was that was very beautiful when he got older. Because, you know, when you're older, you ain't really thinking about your immediate family, you're thinking about what you're, what you're about to accomplish and if you're about to start your own family. When he came around, we were, we were very thankful for that. Roycinda told us that even though Darren had moved out, their relationship remained strong. They did not always agree on Darren's choice of girlfriends, but otherwise, things were good. We were okay till it came to his women that I didn't care about. So, you know, that was an issue. But other than that, he loved me. I loved him. I I taught him how to drive. Like, if I'm hanging out, I have him drive me. Come on, Darren, you can ride with me. But the only, the only issues, like I said, that we had that was really bad was him and the type of women that he decided to bring in my face. Because I never allowed it. I, I really didn't. I told him, uh, be a teenager, do what y'all do. But don't be committed and bring no little girls in here and have no kids. Because look what I had to go through. But um, that didn't last. That conversation didn't last long. What did you know about his friends and who he was hanging out with? Nothing. Believe it or not. Nothing. So he was really off on his own? Yeah, he was. And when he would show up, hey, Mom. Per the Virginian pilot... And Royce and his interviews, the rules of their family home, a very structured Navy household with expectations set by both Royce and and Darren's stepfather, those weren't the only issues Darren had in his teens. The paper reports one conviction on Darren's record and an associated six-month sentence, and that came for, quote, assaulting a police officer. That description is actually one that Royce and feels is inaccurate. She describes the event as closer to, quote, bumping into an officer while Darren was in a courtroom. That said, Roycinda has told one news outlet after another, Darren's behavior was not perfect. But after Darren moved out, he still kept tabs on his younger siblings. Like Miguel explained, he made sure he attended their sporting events and that they were going to school. And he also maintained his close relationship with his sister Shantae who was probably the one in the family who knew the most about what was going on in his day-to-day life. Oh, me and Darren were very close. Every day I used to go to work, he he knew I couldn't answer my phone. So he would leave me a voice message and it would say, hey, baby, I'm just calling to check up on you. You got $5? And he would tell me he loved me and then he would hang up. And then I would call him whenever I had time to call him. But Darren used to make sure every day If I didn't answer my phone, he would leave me a voicemail to let me know that he cared and that he called to, you know, just to check in on his little sister. To this day, when I see his friends, they would always tell me, Darren was very protective of you. He loved you. Couldn't nobody do any harm to you. You were like his best friend. I said, no, he, he was my best friend. He was. He really was. You know, we all go through life, our trials and tribulations. You know, and everyone is not perfect. But when you when you came around Dern, you 
life was just different when Darren was there. And that's the beauty of when you meet really genuine people, like you can really feel their vibe, their, their aura. And it changes whatever phase you are in life right then. You're not in that phase in that moment you are with Darren. Do you recall being worried at all about Darren? I was always worried about Darren because Darren was in the street. Like, you never know where Darren was at. That's the thing. If When you are uncertain of where a person at, you're always going to have that thing in the back of your head that keeps making you concerned. Like, I wonder where he at. I wonder if he's safe. I wonder what he's doing. Is he going to call me? Am I going to see him? So, yeah, being that Darren just like 16 or 18, he just jumped the gun into his own lifestyle. I was always worried. When Darren's family found out that he was going to be a father, it was not a total surprise. Roycinda had warned him about the struggles that she'd faced as a young parent, but she also knew that he was dating and that he'd had various girlfriends, some of whom she'd met. They all felt that Darren would be a good father. After all, he'd had a hand in the care of his younger siblings, and he was truly excited to meet his son. Roycinda, Miguel, and Shantae all recalled Darren's reaction to his son's birth and his approach to fatherhood. Darren loved to be a daddy. He couldn't wait. I'm like, Lord Jesus, y'all ain't learned from your mama. I mean, I wanted kids. I wanted a whole house full of kids. I did, but um, I should have waited. Oh, man. He was a great dad. He'd been doing fatherly duty because he took care of us, so it was already in his DNA. And that's why he was even attending his party on the tragic events. That's how much of a family guy he is. What was he like as a dad? Oh, he was the best dad. His son went with him everywhere. Like, him and the child's mother, they used to always go back and forth. But Jeremy, I want my son. I'm about to come get my son. They used to go everywhere. They were, like, inseparable. Like, Darren, when he, I think, you know, sometimes they say, they say, Having a child changes the person, and sometimes it doesn't. It helped him mature more. So a lot of the things he was out there doing in the street, it caused him to say, hey, now I have a son. I have to change my lifestyle. And that's what he was doing. I know that desire came from because our real father left us so young. He was like, hey, I'm not going to do this to my kids if I have kids. I'm going to be a better father than my father was to us. And that's exactly what he did. When it came to that hot day in early May, and what Roy Senda described to us as that last-minute or rescheduled birthday celebration for Darren's son, it was no surprise that Darren would be at the party. He wanted to be there for his child. According to Roy Senda's interview with WAVY News, Darren found out about the party on May 8th through a text message. Some reports have indicated that the party was actually planned by the baby's mother's side of the family. Darren and Roy Cinda had seen each other earlier in the week, so Darren could give her a Mother's Day present. He knew he wasn't going to see her at the park that day. After all, she'd made plans to be in Virginia Beach. His sister, Shantae, she was with one of their cousins out of state, and his brother, Miguel, was getting ready to go to prom. But first, Darren needed a favor from him. I was getting ready for prom, 
And I was talking to him all morning. He just called me like 15 minutes before it happened. He called me like, hey, Miguel, bring me my ID. Because I had his ID. I guess he was going to do something tonight and he wanted his ID. So I'm like, all right, bro, I'm about to bring it to you. So I, my girlfriend at the time, I sent her over there to give him the ID because I was getting ready for prom. All my family, I was in Portsmouth. He was in Norfolk. He was like right through the tunnel. So then they called me back 15 minutes later. was like, hey, your brother just got killed. I'm like, what? I'm 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 putting on my jacket. You know, it's a, it's prom night. And it's his kid's birthday. So, you know, it's just like, it won't nothing but excitement in the air. You know, everybody having all these big events. That's the day it turned my whole world upside down. Keisha called me back like 15 minutes later and said, your brother's right here dead. He just got killed. And I was sending him the IDs. It was that it was that fast. He just called me. Your girlfriend was the one who called. Yeah, and I'm like, what? Like, I just got off the phone with him, and yeah, she confirmed it, and yeah, I just dropped on my knees, started crying, and it was like, come like, everybody was around. Yeah, it was crazy. It was, I didn't even think that could happen. I didn't even know that was a thing. Before any of this happened, had you ever felt like he was in danger? No, I really didn't. And not to that nature. You know, we all have fights growing up and all that. But I didn't think it was to that extent. I didn't know that these kind of guys were after him. I would have never thought in a million years. And you know me, I was I was in school. I was, you know... I'm by the book. I never thought. And it was out of his own neighborhood. We grew up in that neighborhood. It never, never registered that this could happen. Never. I never had that. Shantae, who was out of state at the time that Darren was attacked, had a strange feeling on May 8th. It was her first warning that bad news was coming. When was the first time on that day that you knew something was wrong? You know, it's crazy. I had just caught a train to Maryland with my son. I was going to visit my cousins out in Maryland. And we had just came in the house from um, walking the boardwalk out in Maryland. And I told my cousin, I said, I'm cold. It was very hot in Maryland that day. She said, girl, you tripping. It's hot. I said, no, I'm cold. It was just this big chill that came over my body and I knew something was wrong then my phone rung and it was this girl I used to hang with she kept asking me are you sitting down are you sitting down? I said why the hell you keep asking me am I sitting down what is wrong and then that's when she told me my brother got killed and I just dropped to my knees and threw my phone and I just started crying because like I said that chill told me something was going wrong that day. I just didn't know what. Roycinda also got a phone call from a girl that Darren had dated. Like I said, I never knew a birthday was going to happen that day. I knew one was going to happen a week before. I was out. I was in Virginia Beach. And I know I had just went to somebody's house and I got the phone call. And the girl said that Darren had just been shot and I dropped the phone. Then I just got in my car and started driving. I hope my son is alive. That's all I was thinking, that he's alive. But when I got there, the head had cut off, 
the um, park is one way in and one way out. So you have to go around a cul-de-sac. They wouldn't even let me into the cul-de-sac. I had to park my car right there, and all I see is a whole bunch of people. And I'm just asking them, his cousin out there, too. And I'm asking them, what's going on? Where's Darren? And the police, like I said, they were yelling at me, wouldn't even let me go at first. Wasn't even going to let me go past. But when they did let me pass, they told me Darren was over there. And I'm like, where? And they were like, over there. And all I saw was his feet sticking up. And I'm glad that's all I saw. Because when I saw the crime scene photos and I saw the neck of that bottle sticking out his eye, his ears cut, they tried to hurt him. They tried to cut his face. I couldn't show his fingers because that's how hard he fought. They were trying to do some damage. But somebody they didn't even know. And that question, why Darren Gray had been attacked and murdered in City Park, became not only the focus of the Norfolk police, but the focus of Roysenda's life, too. Because though investigators had trouble chasing down stories, Roysenda and her family heard rumors. Rumors about a fight in a barber shop, an attempted robbery, an issue with Darren's cousin with payback enacted on Darren. It was all boiling there underneath the surface, even as the park emptied, and Roysenda was left with police tape and the body of her oldest child. There was evidence at the scene that would eventually lead to at least one suspect. And though five arrests would come for Darren's beating, those eventual convictions were called into question. Not for the lack of a crime, Darren's murder occurred in broad daylight, in front of a park full of witnesses. But the court proceedings became more complex than anyone could have imagined, and none of those charged were connected with the two guns that were fired at Darren. Though the mob beating was pursued, his final killers remained at large. And in a neighborhood that had always felt familiar, Roysenda Alexander and her children were suddenly surrounded by what felt a lot more like strangers. Next time on The Fall Line, Possible motives behind Darren Gray's beating and murder. The arrests, charges, and court proceedings surrounding his attackers and where his case stands today. If you have any information regarding the murder of Darren Anthony Gray, you can call the crime line at 1-888-562-5887 or visit p3tips.com. Tips leading to an arrest are eligible for a reward of up to $1,000. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thanks for listening. The Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to pay for the Millbrook Twins billboard and to fund therapy for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our patrons helps us to continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. We also have occasional video live streams and blogs, which all patrons can enjoy starting at just a dollar. If you prefer Apple Premium, we've begun that feed as well. 
The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrow. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd, Liz Lipka, and Sarah Turney. As of November 2022, monthly donations are going to Season of Justice to support their testing and family grant initiatives. <laughs>